Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. We're wrapping up our series, Demystifying the Infrastructure Bill. And today, we're speaking with William Nordwin. Will is a partner and co-chair of Venable's Legislative and Government Affairs Group. He's a 15-year veteran of Capitol Hill with in-house legal, government relations, and crisis communications experience, and he focuses practice on government relations and congressional investigations. He'll talk to us about how his group helps clients navigate the ambiguous space resulting from what comes out of government and how they can work within the structure to avail themselves of what's been created by the infrastructure bill. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. We have so enjoyed our time here at Venable over the last several weeks in our conversations and um, interactions with your partners and friends as a partner and a co-chair of the uh, Legislative and Government Affairs Practice Group. I'm interested to know more about how you serve your clients. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, business that you're in because you are really being engaged by clients of many ilk to represent them and help them you know, navigate so much of what's coming out of Capitol Hill. Talk to us about this, Will. Sure, Dave. Well, first, thank you. Uh, we've been delighted to participate in this podcast series with you and, and uh, your listeners, Design Intelligence. There's a lot of buzz in the building about this because we think a lot about the built environment. Uh, We have historically and continue to do so. And just in this last year, with all of the work that the government is investing in infrastructure policy, being able to combine what we know uh, with an audience that cares to listen is really a a terrific uh, moment for us as well. So um, we've been absolutely delighted. Uh, I guess we would call us policy geeks or nerds so this is this is really this is entertaining for us as uh, as well and and um, hope it's useful uh, to your listeners so how do we serve clients uh, here at venable venable as you know is a uh, national law firm with offices throughout the country east coast west coast and even in the midwest we just opened up a chicago office last year and uh, we're a full service law firm And in part, the legislative and government relations practice group is part of what the law firm in a sense that as lawyers and and non-lawyers, consultants at Venable, our goal is to really help solve client problems. And oftentimes, the government relations is a tool in the toolbox as much as a litigator or a regulatory attorney might be. Sometimes you need what I call the uh, Article One lawyer, which is Article One of the Constitution, establishing the Congress. I consider myself an Article One lawyer, and, and my job is to understand our group, and our, and our job is to understand what's happening in Congress and the federal government, and be able to bring our understanding of that, our experience with that, and our relationships uh, with key policymakers to help serve our clients and help them achieve their objectives. And so in the let's just take the this infrastructure space with a brand new 1.2 trillion dollar investment in infrastructure. We have clients who uh, maybe fall into maybe a couple different camps. Uh, some have a very advanced understanding of what their either commercial or governmental objective is because sometimes we represent a county or a, uh, a state 
Oftentimes it's uh, a commercial interest. And they have a very refined sense of what their commercial or governmental objective is. Build a levy, dredge a port, right. expand a highway, yeah, build yeah. an air traffic control tower, whatever that might be. And so our job is to then take that very refined objective and reverse engineer it and understand what are all the steps they would need to take in order to achieve that objective. What are the steps from a government relations perspective will they need to take to uh, reach that objective? That's the one side of it. What I find to be the most rewarding part of doing what I do at a law firm is that we partner with lawyers and other practice groups, whether it's the environmental practice group who understands all of the environmental permits that are necessary in order to achieve an objective, whether it's our government contracts practice group, to the extent there's government contracting that is part of the process of, of uh, procuring federal grants for or uh, investments. We have uh, tax policy groups to the extent that there are tax incentives that uh, you know, for manufacturing, for example, Congress is the House is this week likely to consider a bill that would invest $52 billion in domestic manufacturing for semiconductor chips. And uh, the question would be, in terms of procuring those funds, some of it might be through the tax code or otherwise we have tax lawyer partners that uh, we, we work with. And so the multidisciplinary world we have at a law firm, a national law firm like Venable, government relations is one of those disciplines and we work seamlessly. We have practice groups, they're more internal distinctions, but we are Venable, we are a firm. Uh, and we bring all of those disciplines to bear. So that's with respect to, I said, the, the clients that have a very granular sense of what they want to do. And they come to us and say, here's what we want. Help us go get that. We reverse engineer. Others will say, well, we make, let's just say, broadband equipment, uh, IT infrastructure. Uh, we, that's what we do. We understand that this bipartisan infrastructure bill has a massive investment for broadband deployment. We really should be in that game. What can we do to, to you know, what, what is that program that the government has just launched? Is it something that we could access the, the funding for that? What would we have to do to do that? Do we have to partner with nonprofits? And we help them develop a, a request or a, uh, an ask of the government. And then we help them go get that uh, once fantastic. we do. Yeah. And so that's generally speaking how government relations, the legislative practice group approaches its client work. Um, you, you are you are Sherpas, uh, guiding so. your clients through very this so. this very strange and unknown shadowy space of what comes out of government. Because it you know to the the typical business owner, it's gobbledygook unless you understand how to interpret it and how to guide through it. And so your practice is really assisting your clients on navigating this this ambiguity. That's right. Yeah. And so part of our Modus operandi as a group and if, as a firm is to bring partners in who have experience, whether it's in Capitol Hill or in the agencies. I worked for a congressional committee and worked on Capitol Hill for 12 years as a, as a lawyer. Uh, we have staff directors. We have Jim Burnley, as you know, is the former secretary of transportation. Fred Wagner, who's a frequent podcaster now with, with you all, uh, was general counsel of the Federal Highway Administration. 
Jim Riley was chief of staff to Senator Carper, who's now chairman of the Environment and Public Works Committee. I could go on and on and on, yeah. but yeah. we have people, bipartisan, Republicans and Democrats, who have worked in uh, executive branch and legislative branch in multiple committees. But what we have is experience. We've been through, this isn't the first infrastructure bill we've been through. We've had the, the Tiger grants in the, during the recession and, uh, the, the, and earlier in the 2000s. And, and so we've seen how it, sometimes past is prologue. Yeah. Sometimes it's not. And, but either way, we have to get to the bottom of what it is that uh, the government is doing. And we oftentimes are just gathering intelligence. Um, many times it's gathering intelligence as to what, what's on the minds of, of the government with a brand new program. As you know, this bipartisan infrastructure bill, there's some new programs. Some of it's replenishing existing pots yes. and, and knowing how those pots work is really important. But some of the new programs, it's really, you know, whole cloth and we have political appointees working with the uh, bureaucrats within agencies figuring out well how are we going to do this sometimes they'll look to see what they've done in the past and maybe apply some of those uh, methods to the new thing sometimes it's no we want to scrap that and make sure we have we're achieving other objectives whether it's diversity and inclusion or or environmental objectives so we, w- we definitely don't want to do it that old way we want to do it a new way and that's we seek to get a better understanding from our contacts within the government as to what's that going to look like if it's something new. You know, and I think of Venable, uh, look back over its many years in practice, you have a long memory of watching what's come out of these administrations and that's these right. governments for a long time and how critical that is to leverage that forward. If it, what, Who was it? Mr. Churchill said, if, if we forget the past, we're doomed to repeat it, That's something right. like that, right? And so if we don't extract the lessons learned, both positive and negative lessons, then we're somewhat short-sighted. And, and I think what I'm hearing is your clients are relying on you to have that long memory, to bring it forward, and to use that along with your your collective intelligence and uh, network and uh, strategic orientation to guide them through what may be new or maybe a new chapter, but same book, depending on what they're encountering. And certainly you nailed it on this new infrastructure bill. So much of it is replenishment, but so much of it is a new program. And it's going to require some new thinking to be able to administer that and to understand how to navigate it. And, and in a positive way, take advantage of it that is good for the most. That's yeah. right. And so I think generally speaking, you know, our capabilities, I would say, you know, is not only helping clients identify what they want or need and how to get it, and then actually executing and, and whether you call that lobbying or influence or advocacy, um, it's sometimes a message, an, an objective described one way might pique the interest of a Republican, described another way might pique the interest of a Democrat, or maybe you, you consistently describe something to Republicans and Democrats and it resonates with both. But usually, like anything else in life, the, the Congress is sort of like a jury, and you need to know who your jurors are and what you know what their biases are, or interests are, and and see if you can play to that to make what you have for your clients most appealing mm. or seem most logical. Um, and again, they're different uh, different members of Congress with varied interests, various perspectives and backgrounds, different constituencies, and knowing what those are really helps. You know, sort of in many ways like sales. You really want as much business intelligence before you go in to make a sale. Yep. And that's in, in 
part, that's that's what we help our clients understand. You know, people often ask me, since this is somewhat the, the center of all of these discussions we've been having, what is the built environment industry? I mean, it just seems like some amorphous term, and people often confuse the the idea of the built environment industry with what is often referred to as AEC, Architecture Engineering Construction. So I want to clarify that because I think it's important that AEC is a subset of the built environment industry. The built environment industry is everything on the planet Earth that is built, mm-hmm. which means tunnels and bridges and infrastructure and, of course, transportation, roads, ports, airports, and, of course, dwellings, buildings that we, you and I are sitting in a building on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, D.C. This is a part of the built environment industry, but it includes all of the manufacturers and suppliers who directly sell their goods and services to the built environment industry. It is, without question, the largest industry on the planet Earth. And this infrastructure bill is smack in the middle of it, right? And yet we're watching also other countries in kind passing their own infrastructure bills that are impacting the built environment industry. I was reading this morning about an analysis from Oxford Economics and what the Chinese are doing as they've been putting a lot of constraints and pulling in on the on the reins of their economy to try to get get their debt problem under control, to try to settle their real estate debacle that they're going through. Uh, they're still in this no COVID policy, which means nobody's moving, and yet they keep having outbreaks. All these things are happening, but in the, in the economics review from Oxford, they were saying that in 2022, they will begin once again issuing huge amounts of money toward Infrastructure, again, very much like what we are doing in country as opposed to their their Belt Road initiative, which they were doing outside of country. And of course, we're seeing this being debated in Europe right now to understand what the EU will do as far as more infrastructure in their place. As I talk to our clients and our members of our Design Futures Council, all of them, without fail, are either curious excited or befuddled (laughs) across Mm -hmm. that as to what does this really mean, this infrastructure bill that's been passed. And we also saw a second infrastructure bill, Build Back Better, kind of get shut down toward the end of the year. And even though so much of that was social infrastructure, a large part of it was also flowed over to the built environment industry. And we're wondering, so what? What What does this mean to us as owners and partners in the built environment industry. How how can we navigate this seeming ambiguity? Well, I think uh, while it is one big global industry, I'm sure, or my sense is that within that there are segments, there's segmentation, whether it's ports or bridges, roads, buildings. And my sense is that the programs that are funded under the infrastructure bill are are equally as potentially at least, segmented. And so what might be very important and interesting to one of your members might not be as important as interesting to another and vice versa. And so really it does take, there's a lot of mapping that we do, really trying to map what are the all the pieces what's all the, of this infrastructure bill and, and who's administering those pieces. What's the time frame for 
getting money out. Some of it will go to states, and there's a strategy, you know, for influencing state governments as to how money will get invested in infrastructure. Some of it's going to be more through just the federal agencies, and you know, mapping that out, and then figuring out what's the what's the methodology for them getting that money out the door, presenting it to the public for applications, and and uh, taking a process there. Now, having said all that, while money flows, there are other challenges potentially for projects, and they may be regulatory approval processes, federal, state, local. There are potentially legal challenges to infrastructure projects that need to be considered and factored in. And again, what my role at a firm that's multidisciplinary is to try to best understand what the government relations challenges will be, but then working with colleagues in the environmental group to understand what are the environmental regulatory approvals that are necessary, or there might be other regulatory regimes that apply. You have a construction law group that's a part of this organization as yes. well. And of course, the implications of this of these new bills will alter, I'm guessing, some of the contractual instrumentation of how projects are put together, how they're monitored, uh, all those things. So I'm guessing as you encounter client opportunities, then you refer over to, for instance, the environmental group or to the construction law group, which is so powerful of having a a multidisciplined group because you're not like, hey, this is what we got, but we have nowhere to send you, but because the firm is is well-equipped. Well put. And uh, yes, I mean, it might be an interesting podcast topic. Uh, It really is the pure construction law uh, the process of getting a contract for procurement of the services to do the work, to dig the holes and to uh, erect the steel uh, girders and things. Um, how will this new program change any of that? So, Will, how long have you been doing this? Not just at Venable, in your, in your life as a, as a Capitol Hill participant, as a lawyer, as an advocate for clients, how, how long have you been doing this? Well, I was uh, a government major in college, uh, graduated in 1989, but I did my Washington semester in 1987. Um, I said I went out and took my semester abroad in Washington, D.C., okay. it was, was really felt like another planet at the time, and uh, worked for my hometown congressman, a fellow by the name of Fred Upton of Michigan, who is still in Congress. In fact, one of the few Republicans who voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill in the House and received death threats for that, which is a whole other topic. Wow. Uh, but having said that, I, um, I had worked on Fred Upton's first campaign as a volunteer. Uh, I was 19 and he was 31. <laughs> and uh, when I graduated college, I came to work for Fred Upton, Congressman Upton in Washington, answering his phones and then moved my way up into the legislative uh, shop in his office and then went to night law school while I was working for him. Got my law degree and then uh, ended up becoming a counsel to the uh, House Energy and Commerce Committee, which Congressman Upton eventually chaired. And so uh, all in, I think I had about 12 years on Capitol Hill. And then uh, pretty much the rest of it has been at Venable. Started at Venable in 2006. I took a two-year sabbatical uh, around 2018, 2019, and went in-house and became an associate general counsel at a pharmaceutical company, and then came back to Venable just before the pandemic uh, unleashed. Uh, so I've been a partner at Venable probably about 12 or 13 years, and uh, doing what I'm doing uh, for that long. And so you love what you do? I surely do. What gets you up in the morning? I mean, what what, what energizes you about the work that you do? Well, I was going to say, besides the yellow lab puppy, yeah. <laughs> um, who gets me up in the morning, um, you know, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I always thought that the 
and continue to think the job of a lawyer is to help clients solve problems. And in many ways, that's what I do every day is help clients solve problems. And But it's really mostly through the government relations, whether it's the legislative or executive branch. And I find that is a very exhilarating experience because uh, there's a high degree of job satisfaction. Now, there's a lot of frustration trying to get the government to, to move. I find that my clients that have experience at the state legislative level where you can get a bill introduced one day and the governor is signing it six days later. Uh, that just that speed is just not what typically is done in Washington D.C. Now the the pandemic changed to a certain extent to think that we spent trillions of dollars over the course of about a nine to ten month period, and then came on top of that with another one point two trillion infrastructure bill. That's a lot in a relatively for Washington D.C. purposes truncated space. More typically, I would say, is a, is a more attenuated time frame for clients to achieve objectives. And uh, that trying to speed that up and figure out ways to expedite the, uh, you know, the start to finish for a client project is, is also a great challenge. It's, um, some people like to do the New York Times crossword puzzle. You know, I, like, I find it very interesting to uh, figure out ways to achieve client objectives as cost and time effectively as possible. That's fantastic. We're in an election year. It's 2022. We're in the midterm elections. We have a lot at stake, 400-plus seats in the House of Representatives. I think we have uh, 30 or 36 senatorial seats. We have over 30 governorships. We have, if I my numbers are correct, 40-some of state legislatures will flip in this year. This is extraordinary what's happening. Are we going to see – are there – implications during this year, not as the result of the year after November, but are there implications to this being an election year to befuddling the clarity around this bill? Will we see this bipartisan infrastructure bill become politicized during this period? Uh, this is really important to us because we it, it seems very clear to us at Design Intelligence what's happened. We have a fantastic bill that's on the that has now become law. And uh, I, I guess our concern is is that it would become the fodder for crazy voices to try to make something else of it than what it is, which is really an investment in America. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I found an article, and the, the headline is, Republicans tout parts of infrastructure package after voting against the bill. And uh, this, the byline here, several House Republicans are praising parts of the recently enacted funding measure they see as beneficial to their districts after they bashed the overall bill as wasteful. <laughs> so the, I think historically infrastructure has not been controversial. Uh, as I mentioned, my previous boss, Congressman Fred Upton, received death threats for voting for that. I think in large part there was a conflation out in the digital media as to what was the bipartisan infrastructure bill versus the Build Back Better bill. And yes, a lot it was of, very confusing. And a lot last, of re yeah. rhetoric around that. And I think that caused perhaps a misunderstanding amongst some as to what that vote by, say, Congressman Fred Upton really was and what it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Having said all that, the reports, at least coming out of the, the news media, are Republicans who voted against that bill are now seeing and joining in a bipartisan way to encourage the agencies to fund, you know, expansion of the of a levy that uh, in their state or in their district. And I and that's back to what I think is the the, the normal way that infrastructure was perceived historically 
that, that there's bipartisan benefit. I think yes. it was was it Mayor LaGuardia that said there's no Republican way or Democratic way to fix a pothole. And I think that <laughs> I've always felt that's very similar to the way Congress has approached infrastructure. So I think it was a, a very nasty partisan exercise, not exclusively, but for the most part, that bipartisan infrastructure bill for political reasons that went well beyond what infrastructure is or isn't. But now that it's in place, at least anecdotally, the evidence suggests that um, even Republicans who voted against it and spoke out against the bill very strongly do see the benefits of the, those investments in their congressional districts and they're, they're supporting that. So hopefully that uh, will remain the norm um, and not therefore create a uh, – insurmountable political obstacle to, to get to implementing the bill through the executive Yeah, we range. hope not. We hope not. At Design Intelligence, we've our economics group has sat down. We've thought about this to some degree, and we see there's nothing but good for the overall long-term economy from this $1.2 trillion that we think will yield a minimum of four, up to six trillion dollars of economic benefit over the next 10 years. I mean, it's extraordinary. Now, it comes with a high cost, right? I mean, we're going to be further in debt and we have issues, but we think that if Congress will appropriately view how we're going to claw back taxes to all of this great benefit, then we'll find ourselves acting more responsibly around our budgets. But at the end of the day, this was a right thing to do. And it's not just let's add more stuff out there. We have a lot of infrastructure that has to be replaced and renewed and Finally, this Congress has stepped up saying we're going to do that in a, in a meaningful way. So we're, we're very excited about the implications of this over the next few years. I think we are, too, here in Washington because it is uh, – we are hearing from clients who are very interested in how they can work within the structure to avail themselves of, of what Congress has just done and what the president signed. And so I th- we're, there seems to be a lot of excitement in town as well. It was interesting. I was, I was on a call with a senior executive, a board member of a – global infrastructure engineering firm uh, that is headquartered outside the United States but has a lot of offices in the U.S. And they had heard one of our installments of this series on demystifying the infrastructure bill. And it was extraordinary. he's, He's quoting all this back to me, listening to this and saying, how do we, how do you counsel us to best posture ourselves for this opportunity? And I said to him, we'll call him John. By the way, everyone, his name is not John. Okay, we're going to call him John. I said, John, I'd like to introduce you to our friends at Venable because I don't have a clue. But they're the ones who have the playbook on this. So interesting already how this is generating uh, just what you and I were just talking about at the beginning here. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, too. And uh, just one cautionary note, I guess. Um, Politico and Harvard released a poll yesterday, and the headline is that Republicans and independents view the bipartisan infrastructure bill as as stoking inflation. You know, the the, the one point two trillion, and and um, the, the respondents were not certain that all of that spending was going to actually benefit them in their daily lives. So I think part of that may be the result of the onslaught of Republican opposition to the bill when it was pending, and there's a hangover effect. I mean, at one point you might argue. Congressmen wonder whether anyone listens to them. On the other hand, there are a lot of people that it's noise. It, it, at a minimum, it's 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 background noise that people do pay attention to, whether it's on 
24-7 cable network news or radio, talk radio, and those messages do get through. Um, and so I think that for Republicans and independents, hearing a message coming from Washington that this was a, an, a bad bill and, and an, an expensive bill and money we can't afford and putting us further in debt, I think that has an impact on public opinion. And it may take a while for that to wash out. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I think it, you know, as we talked about just a second ago, you know, those who voted against the bill touting in their own districts now the benefits of the bill for their districts, that's a positive sign. Yeah. But I think for now, we've government has spent a lot of money, trillions in, in COVID relief and now this infrastructure bill. My sense is, and you're part of the reason why I think Build Back Better has had such difficulty even within the Democratic, I mean, at least two senators on the Democratic side, is because there is out there a public opinion is not 100% yet sold that we need to invest a lot more after all these trillions. So it really is important to bear down on what we have now in the government coffers to invest. And make good of it. You make know, good make of good it. of it. Because I, I think it, there will be a lot of oversight at the end of the day, too, as to how the money is, is going into the field. And, uh, you know, I think, and oversight is good. That's not a bad thing. That's it's a not good a bad thing. thing. No, it's, it, it has to do with accountability. Mm -hmm. And shouldn't we all be held accountable in a positive way? Right. You know, not in a oppressive way, but in an encouraging way. We want to hold you to account to doing the right thing with the funds that have been allocated. Those are all good things. It's interesting, the poll that you just, from Politico Harvard, in the respondents saying this about inflation just belies a fundamental ignorance about what is inflation and how does inflation work because this will have no direct implications on our current crisis of inflation at this point. It may longer term, but if the Fed does its job right, we'll mitigate these things appropriately. It's so interesting to see how hypersensitive our public is to media and instead of really bearing in to understand. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really uh, uh, unfortunate. But again, this is your job to help blow away the ambiguity and smoke around a thing, help your clients and folks understand how to properly navigate what's real and what's, what's just makeup that's out there. So pretty special what you, what you folks are committed to. This has been an extraordinary time to be together. And with all of the partners and participants that came from Venable, Will, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Dave. And, and uh, really appreciate this opportunity. This has been a delight. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.